0: Hello, it's Andrew and I'm here with the Reviewer 2 Does geoengineering Engineering podcast. Today, I've got Walker Lee with me and our motto is that we always prioritize criticism over understanding. This is never more appropriate than today because I don't understand Walker Lee's paper at all. And he is going to explain to me why it's good and why we shouldn't reject it. Uh, this is uh, unlikely to yield a good result for him, but we'll let him have a go anyway. So. Over to you, Walker. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit about, first, your background and how you came to, uh, to start working on this paper, this topic? What, uh, what attracted you to this study? Were you directed to do it? Was it your own initiative? How, how did it come about?
1: Uh, hi, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, I am, my name is Walker Lee. I'm a third-year PhD student at Cornell University, and uh, I'm working on my dissertation under Dr. Douglas McMartin, who's my PhD advisor. And um, we started working on this paper as sort of a uh, the next step after the uh, the Glenn's studies, which uh, my advisor, along with Ben Kravitz at Indiana University, uh, were some of the first uh, people, some of the first faculty to introduce uh, the idea of feedback control to geoengineering. And in 2016... And what does Glenn stand for? Yeah, it stands for the Geoengineering Large Ensemble Project. In uh, 2016 and 2017, uh, Doug and Ben did some experiments where in a climate model, they used feedback algorithms to simultaneously manage three different temperature gradients. The global mean temperature, uh, abbreviated T0, uh, the interhemispheric temperature gradient, abbreviated T1, and the equator-to-pole temperature gradient, abbreviated T2. And then once they got that experiment to, to work, they duplicated it. With working with Simone Tilms at, I believe she's at NCAR, and uh, they duplicated the experiment 20 times to produce the Geoengineering Large Ensemble Project, or GLENS for short. And uh, GLENS is Just to one of the... clarify a couple of things, sure. you,
0: this run on the community earth system model, right?
1: Correct. It's, okay. Yeah.
0: And and, and and you're describing here this feedback algorithm. Yep. You know, crudely put, that's like some kind of thermostatic control for the earth, right? So yeah. in a so, similar way that your um, central heating thermostat will cut your heating out or your AC out when the temperature is right, then in the same way that you sort of feedback and stop the geoengineering intervention or dial it down a little bit to make sure that you don't have overshoot and freeze everybody, right?
1: Exactly. That's a perfect analogy. With the, uh, the heating or the air conditioning in your house, you tell the thermostat what you want the temperature to be, and if it's too hot the central unit will detect that and it'll turn on the air conditioning or turn off the heating and so the temperature goes down. And if it's too cold, it'll turn up the heat and it'll warm up until you get to the temperature you want. And then it'll try and hold that temperature steady. Uh, Doug and Ben did the same thing in geoengineering experiments, where for example, with global mean temperature, uh, they would write a computer algorithm that would every year of simulation, it would compare the actual global mean temperature of the simulation to some target goal. And I believe it was the the average between 2010 and 2030 of a climate model. Help, me, help me understand
0: this because, you know, yeah. taking the analogy of a house, mm-hmm. um, you, you've got um, a simple home heating system will have a single thermostat for the whole house and it will turn the whole thing on or off, right? Yeah. So there's only, you know, if you want to independently control um, a variable, you have to have at least one control for every variable that you are going to control, right? So my house gets hotter or colder according to whether my heating is on or off, right? But Mm -hmm. if I wanted to control uh, every room in my house, then I'd have to have radiator thermostats on every radiator in the house to control every room, right? That's correct. In
1: addition to having multiple thermostats, you also need to have independent control over every radiator. Because if every radiator exactly, is connected to the same, yeah. So there's the little yeah.
0: CRV valves that people are pretty familiar with that fit on the radiator and turn them on and off so that each room, you don't end up with one room that gets super hot because the sun's shining in and another one that's out the back with the sun not shining in it and, it and it gets very cold. Now, in geoengineering, people kind of think, I guess, in most cases, that there are planes and they go and fly stuff up to the stratosphere and mm-hmm. exactly what it is and particle size and stuff is a topic for another day. But um, you know, this stuff kind of goes up, comes out the back of the aircraft, swirls around in the air and makes it the planet cooler. I think most people get the basics of that. Yeah. But help, help me understand what, what it is that you are, um, how are you effecting control over these multiple variables? Because the intervention looks to the layman as if it's kind of on or off, right? So what mm-hmm. are you doing that gives you this fine control over all these different multiple variables?
1: Yep. So uh, this is what my paper looked at. We call it the design space of the ability to control multiple variables at once. And this was also something that Doug and Ben, who wrote Glenn's, which is one of the precursors to my paper, uh, dis, uh, realized is that geoengineering is less of a yes or no problem and more of a design problem. Because by injecting at different latitudes, you can influence different climate variables independently. And so that's how Doug and Ben controlled multiple climate variables at once, in the Glens project, is by choosing different injection rates at different latitudes, they were able to meet multiple feedback climate-related goals simultaneously.
0: Okay, so you let me explain back to you what I think you've explained to me. So you're suggesting that you could in, um, inject either dead on the equator, thirty degrees north, thirty degrees south, etc., and the um, the injections will tend to spread uh zonally um quite quickly but they tend to spread meridonally uh or meridionally I can't pronounce it um much slower as in they go poleward much slower so they tend to stay kind of in the band they've been injected in. Is that is that right?
1: That's exactly right. There are three primary degrees of freedom when it comes to spatial distribution of AOD. Uh, there's almost no zonal control. Uh, like you said, if you inject at any one latitude the aerosols will very quickly spread out to cover the earth. You can think about it as like a ring parallel to the equator, but we have three primary degrees of freedom in the other direction, which is pole to pole. You have the global average uh, injecting in, secondly, injecting in one hemisphere more than the other will preferentially increase aerosol optical depth in that one hemisphere. So you have some control over the hemisphere balance or imbalance, and then likewise injecting close to the equator or close to the poles will increase aerosol depth preferentially close to where you inject it. So so the the
0: the key variables are the total amount of stuff you put in, how far or how far away from the poles you put it in and how evenly you put it in between the two different hemispheres.
1: That's exactly correct. And in the, uh, in the literature, we usually abbreviate these as we, um, we, we, uh, represent the aerosol optical depth distribution, which is the amount of, basically the amount of reflection that you get by the aerosols, as mathematically we call it a truncated Legendre decomposition, which is a fancy word for just saying we have the average and then a linear term and then a quadratic term, where the average is the global mean. The linear term represents uh, uh, pole to pole or the equatorial, the, the hemispheric imbalance, and then Pull to pull the uh, equator to pole is uh, the quadratic, and we call these L zero, L one, and L two, respectively. So L zero represents the global mean. L one is the. We're getting down into the the, getting
0: down into the guts guts of the paper. Um, Just want to ask you a couple of things, just about the basics. Mm -hmm. So the. just to, can you give everyone the title of the paper and the journal in which it was published, just so that they, it can aid them looking it up?
1: Yep. So uh, my paper has been accepted for peer review in Earth System Dynamics, and the title is Expanding the Design Space of Stratospheric Aerosol Geoengineering to Include Precipitation-Based Objectives and Explore Trade-Offs. And the, the title's a bit of a mouthful, but it really covers the two main points of my paper. Which are yeah, the so first? You, you, yeah, you
0: get to kind of play with a number of different variables. And yeah. so, um, talk, talk me through how this fits into your career. So, this is the, um, the sort of towards the back end of your PhD. So, is this the first paper that you've published? Is this the first published work you've done? Or uh,
1: this is my first paper as the lead author. I've been involved with a few other smaller works so far, but this is the this is the first one that's going out with my name at the front.
0: Okay, and so talk talk to me a little bit about how you've. Um, uh you know done the research here so was it was it your idea the re- reason for this i think a lot of people reading this will be well re- uh, listen to this would be relatively early in their career and they want to build up their experience um of the publication process and the um, paper development process by proxy they want to basically learn from your mistakes so they don't have to make them themselves so i'd really like to kind of hear how you got to do this and, and what went wrong and what went right and what drew you to working on this, I think we've got a reasonable understanding of the contents of the paper. But tell me how this sort of fits into your wider program of work, your career, you know, what you want to do. Where, you know, what's the big picture here?
1: Uh, absolutely. So, uh, when I started, I'm first of all, I'm I consider myself very lucky to be where I am. I'm very passionate about this work, it's really meaningful to me, and so I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to be able to work on what is it this,
0: that you like about the work? Is it because you uh, are propel ahead and you enjoy the the maths of it or is it because you are a you know a firebrand crusader who wants to save the world where, where do you kind of sit on that spectrum
1: i'd say it's both uh i'm a huge dork and i really enjoy the maths and the engineering and just learning about climate science in general uh, i did my background my uh, my undergrad i was a mechanical engineer at brown and i worked on renewable oh, energy
0: i did mechanical engineering as well
1: yeah and uh, I'm uh, I'm actually still a mechanical engineering student. Uh, Doug is uh, a lecturer and a researcher in the mechanical engineering department. Even though most of my graduate committee is in atmospheric sciences here at Cornell, it's uh, I'm technically in mechanical engineering. And so yeah, I've it's, noticed, it's the best um, I noticed I noticed some of
0: the sort of preceding work that came out of um, uh, that research group because uh in the dim and distant days of my undergraduate degree i remember doing control systems theory mm-hmm. um and it was one of the few bits of mechanical engineering that i was actually any good at mm-hmm. um so um uh i i actually failed the exam because i didn't show my workings having taught the rest of the year group how to do it which is a bit galling um but never mind that's a story for another day <laughs> um but uh I remember the, the, these original uh, papers coming out and thinking, wow, that's really interesting, you know, formalizing the control algorithms yeah. so that you don't end up with kind of yo-yoing temperatures and things like that, you know, all the problems exactly. that you can have when things aren't designed properly. So I, I thought this was a really sort of smart, groundbreaking bit of research, the original research that kind of gave birth to this strand of research that you've now been engaged in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, two thumbs up for that. The um, uh, The in terms of what you've done here, mm-hmm. my understanding is that you uh, are basically making this a multi-dimensional uh, control algorithm, whereas previously it was a single dimension control algorithm. Is that the case?
1: Uh, that's that's sort of correct. So for the the first, the very earliest um, geoengineering climate experiments, there was no feedback algorithm at all. They just inject this amount of sulfur and then see what happened. And then once you get, once you do that a few times, you get the idea of
0: how it's much like you school need. School dinners—they serve the same amount of gruel every day, whether yeah, you're hungry or not. Exactly.
1: Right? And then Doug and Ben started introducing feedback algorithms, and at first it would be just one variable where you base you you inject more aerosols if you want to cool the planet down, and you inject fewer aerosols if you want to if you want to ease off on the cooling. And then eventually they got to the Glens experiments where they could do multiple. Um, multiple variables at once. And where my paper comes in is the Glenn's experiments did exclusively temperature-based metrics, where they would control T1, T2, and T0, which are the global mean, the interhemispheric balance, and the equator-to-pole balance, by injecting different amounts of L0, L1, and L2, which are, again, the global mean, the interhemispheric balance, and the equator-to-pole balance by adjusting those different amounts of aerosols and those gradients, you can control different temperature gradients. My paper expands on their work by including not only temperatures, but moving out to controlling different precipitation-based metrics and also sea ice. So I'm not the first person to do a multi-dimensional climate model experiment where we try and control multiple things at once. But um, it's, uh, it's my understanding that I am the first paper in the literature to do precipitation-based objectives using injected aerosols to control those precipitation and have metrics. the
0: feedback algorithm working yeah. in conjunction to, to control all that. Yeah. So help me understand this. Like, so you've got these fundamentally three variables now. You know, most um, injection scenarios. And I've done some engineering work with Doug, and we've looked at different injection approaches. But mostly, people are talking about using aircraft to do this. They're pretty flexible. They can fly pretty much anywhere. You know, you you might have to adjust the. Fuel tank sizes, or build a couple of extra runways and stuff like that. But basically, you can fly them anywhere. So why, why are you concentrating on just having these small bands? You know, why not have a hundred bands of aerosols that you could put in? I mean, obviously that makes the math harder and a bit more complicated. But is it not the case that that would give you, you know, so much better control that it would be easily justify the complexity? Obviously, you know, building a single plane is a lot more difficult than coming up with a control algorithm, right? So it seems. Sensible to look at putting a much higher degree of control in than even you have to
1: put in. So that's absolutely a fair criticism, but uh, I would say, first of all, like you said, it would add a ton of maths and a ton of complexity, and we don't necessarily have the computer time available to run all those simulations. There is some data, I think, Zhen uh, Dai wrote a paper about the effects of injecting at every, not necessarily every latitude, but a lot more. Um, the the Glens paper and my paper, uh, both they yeah, inject Gen, it Gen only.
0: Jendai is very cool, and um, she's also known for getting stuck in on Twitter spats, which is great. <laughs> uh, you know when she jumps in, that uh, is going badly for the person that she's having a squabble with. That is so, uh,
1: absolutely something I'll keep in mind if I ever <laughs> decide to. Yeah, but so um, in in short, uh, the Glens paper and my paper, we only consider four different latitudes, which are thirty north. 15 north, 15 south and 30 south because we know that we can influence the three primary degrees of freedom by well, injecting at equator only
0: equator those equator four equator latitudes. And if not, why not?
1: It's um yeah. And so the 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 short reason as to why we're not doing more latitudes is because as of right now we don't need to. They would um it would take up a lot more computer time for not a lot of gain because right How now we you know? only we've only identified three Major degrees of freedom, and it's not clear that because, like, right now we're considering a global average, like a constant, a linear term representing the hemispheric imbalance, and a quadratic term representing the pole to pole imbalance. Surely,
0: if you've got, surely, if you've got, I mean, aerosols, the the temperature of your local area is partly like if someone built a big umbrella over my town, right, Mm -hmm. then we wouldn't get any direct sunshine, but the town would still stay. But something like the same temperature, because the air would be moving in from hotter places and it would keep it warmed up. Right? Exactly.
1: So, if you consider if you want... the higher order terms, like the cubic and the fourth order polynomial of aerosol optical depth, those effects are relatively small compared to managing the global mean and the linear and the quadratic. So you don't get a whole lot of extra firepower, so to speak, by Making the algorithm extremely complicated and injecting so what, all these so, different okay, So what,
0: what I think you've just explained to me is that the atmosphere and the oceans do a, a generally pretty good job of transporting heat around the planet. Yes. And therefore, having fine control over the um, location of um, the reduction in sunlight. Doesn't make a great deal of difference because the wind blows the heat around anyway. So who cares, right?
1: You're absolutely right. After the quadratic, after the the second order polynomial, you get diminishing yep. returns, and so there's absolutely merit into studying those higher order terms and figuring out how of, fine control can we get. We're just that's not what we're doing right now.
0: But in terms of um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, providing people with uh, other climate. Um, you know, other climate effects make a real difference. So, you know, things like cloudiness makes a difference mm-hmm. to um, farmers and to tourism locations, and precip makes a difference to, you know, well, everyone, everywhere. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't ha- doesn't having, you know, 100 controllable bands, wouldn't that make a difference to um, things like rainfall and the power output of wind turbines and all of these other things that, you know, climate services give to people everywhere around the world?
1: Uh, I would say yes, it, it absolutely might. And someday we might get there in geoengineering experiments. But I think certainly with cloud cover, um, the uh, the resolution in a climate model where cloud cover is... Yeah, uh, we don't
0: know how to do clouds anyway. So, yeah. Right?
1: And so I'm I'm not sure how much you could get because the purpose of doing experiments in a climate model is to get an idea of how things would behave in real life if we were to consider... Doing these experiments, and so I think as okay. climate models and computer processing power improve, we absolutely could get there in terms of the kind of experiments we could do. So, but so if I'm we, not if sure we don't need a
0: hundred bands, but we do need um, potentially four bands. Then, you know why 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 was it four and not three, or, or or four and not six? But explain to me why why you've chosen those specific um, uh, injection loci.
1: Uh, well, uh, so the, the, the easy, the cop out answer is that for my paper, we used these four because they were the four that were used in the Glenn's paper. And by injecting at the same latitudes, we could compare That's a good our simulations.
0: Out, you know, by taking any other piece of published work and extending it, you could mm-hmm. magically cover up all of the shortcomings and flaws in your own paper. Yeah. A <laughs> trick I've used in the past myself.
1: But also, um, in a, um, I would say a, a, another reason why those four latitudes were picked in the first place is because uh, they need to be, first of all, it would need to be symmetrical so that you can have the... Um, yeah,
0: but you could have one in the middle. You could have like equator 20, 20. You, could, you
1: could You could also do the equator if you wanted to inject a negative L2 to, to decrease the equator to pole balance. And there are experiments where they um there there was an experiment where they did um controlling just global mean temperature by injecting only at the equator um but it's uh glens did uh glens did those four specific latitudes of injection for the the simple reason that it was well simple and elegant you can get pure L0 with very little L1 or L2 by injecting equal quantities at 15 were and, and, and 15 we are seasonal, because I know that
0: Dan, um, uh, I, can, I can't really pronounce the name very well, but it's Daniele Vizioni. Is yep. that
1: right? Uh, is yeah, it, so uh, Dan's a, a postdoc uh, here at Cornell. He's helped me a lot yeah, with we, my
0: paper in simulations. So, um, yeah. and simulations. Yeah, so I know it Damp on him hard when he started talking about your paper because <laughs> I
1: So yeah, um, no, it's uh Dan's incredibly smart. Seasonal, and so I mean, um, yeah.
0: was your paper seasonal as
1: well or not? Uh, so right now we're uh my paper did only annual injections because we were working on my paper before Dan had finished his seasonal injection paper. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. yeah, right now we're um we're incorporating seasonal injections at uh high latitude stuff. But for for my paper, no, it's only annual. Annual so it just
0: sort of turn, it's, it's kind of on constant. So you do like an annual block, then you do another annual block, then you do another annual block. Is exactly. that kind of sequential yeah. or is it a continuous varying process?
1: Uh, it's So it's, uh, it's a constant rate of injection throughout the year, the same amount every month. And then at the end okay. of the year, you go to the feedback algorithm and you look at all the variables you care about and you compare okay, them so to like what like you
0: are now. like an annual review cycle. You have a kind exactly. of annual general meeting and the computer says, how well do we do, lads? And then uh, it adjusts it for the following year. Exactly. So are these uh, these control these control algorithms are they just um, simple numerics, or are you using black box neural net, or what? How are you actually affecting that control?
1: So I'd say it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, the uh, the the feedback algorithms that we're using are what's called a proportional integral feedback algorithm, and uh, it's um, basically we know how much we want to inject in order to accomplish a certain change in a variable. So like global mean temperature, say if you want a one degree Celsius change in global mean temperature, you have to inject X amount of L0. And then to inject X amount of L0, you have to inject X teragrams of sulfur at 15 north and 15 south. So with a few precursor experiments, we can estimate the sensitivities of all of our climate variables to changes in our three degrees of freedom, which are L0, L1, and L2. And then before the Glenn's paper went out, uh, Doug and Ben did, um, we call it system identification, where we estimate how much injection we need in order to produce a certain quantity of L0 or L1 or L2.
0: But you basically, you get, so what you're doing there is you're, you're, you've given the model a kind of basic understanding of its capability. So it kind of knows where its arms and legs are to start with. Exactly. Uh, And then it has a bit of feedback as it steadily learns that its arms and legs are exactly this long rather than, um, you know, a little bit longer or a little bit shorter, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, So in terms of um, the feedback processes, I had a you know, relatively uh, long discussion about um, using neural net control um, to do this kind of thing and to come up with geoengineering interventions. And I, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the end result of this rather extensive discussion was there wasn't a lot of point using black box neural net control to make this sort of thing more sophisticated because the maths that is in the neural net is already in the climate model right so the gradient descent and stuff like that is already you know you you're you just you're copying and uh, rather than adding to the to the skill that's already available to you right so you, there's not a lot of point using neural nets to do this kind of stuff you're better off with the the simple sort of pen and paper control theory stuff that I learned at university is that is that broadly correct or do you think that there's a, a future to having some sort of Skynet brain that controls the planet with no um, no clear idea of how the thing is conducting its calculations.
1: So I I believe what you said is mostly correct. Uh, sometimes people ask me, like people I've taken control classes with here at Cornell, fellow grad students will ask me, oh, why don't you use this specific feedback algorithm to regulate your climate model injections? And I think there's two reasons. The first reason is, like you said, I don't think you're going to improve the uh, I don't think you're going to improve the results substantially. Uh, And secondly, it's easier to design and justify your your decisions, your design decisions, and the numbers. It's also it's easier for a reviewer, for example, to understand. It's a
0: transparent model as opposed to a black box, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, in terms of the actual injection, so um, uh, CESM is a um, uh, chemistry climate model, right? So, were you injecting um, precursor gases or aerosols or what?
1: Yep, Uh, we inject sulfur dioxide, SO two. And then, okay. after about a month in the climate model, the SO2 oxidizes to H2SO4. So it does, it does its
0: own thing. So, yep. I mean, the thing about sulfur dioxide is that it's kind of, um, you know, you put it in there and, it, and it's kind of pretty unfussy. You can send it up in a plane, you can send it up in a shell, you can mm-hmm. send it up in a balloon. It doesn't really care. It does its own thing, right? Mm-hmm. But if you start using planes to do this um, uh, and you inject um, basically what amounts to boiling sulfuric acid, which then condenses mm-hmm. out into droplets, like um, has been proposed, and me and Doug looked at this in our engineering paper. And that's one of the big advantages of aircraft is that you can get them to, you know, put this stuff in very neatly into um, sub-grid box um, volumes. Um, then you, you, you can control the sort of what you might call the smeariness of the injection.
1: So mm-hmm.
0: we, we, we've talked earlier about how you might control this on a global level, and you're, you're suggesting that you only need a few bands. It's not worth having a hundred bands. Um, you know, I can kind of see that, 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 that the sulfur dioxide thing will make a big difference in that regard because there's no point in having 100 bands if the resolution of your injection can't, you know, you can't place it as finely as that because it all just gets mixed up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but when it comes to um, uh, injecting uh, actual particle injections, I know that's not the subject of your paper, but mm-hmm. could you speculate on whether the, what you might call the smeariness of the injections? would make much difference like whether you have like a very precise bright contrail type um weight or whether it was spread pretty evenly throughout a grid box would you know would that would that be a controllable variable or is that is that not something that would make a great deal of difference
1: uh, so based on my understanding which is a little bit limited i would say that's absolutely something that we could look into and that might improve our fine control uh, i have seen the paper where um they uh I don't remember if it was in a climate model or I don't think it was an actual experiment, but yeah, they injected a straight H2SO4 into the wake of an aircraft. And that basically skips the one month oxa- oxidizing time of SO2. Yeah. And so because with SO2, if you have to wait for a month before it oxidizes and starts having an effect, it spreads out over that month. You can't really control it. But if you inject the straight H2SO4, then you, um, it, it starts having an effect right away. And so you don't have to wait for a month while it spreads out. And so yeah. you have more fine control. I can absolutely see that happening. Uh, and uh, I think that, I, I don't know exactly how you would simulate that in a climate model. I'm guessing it would be too fine of a... It's, of really, a it's really difficult.
0: I mean, uh, yeah. I know that Sebastian Easton is working on the um, uh, the wake to grid cell transmit transition process. Um, it's pretty complicated because the climate models are just not designed to deal with anything with yeah. below a grid cell process. Yeah, you can put sub models inside that Competentially computationally pretty expensive They are used to things like sea ice and stuff where you need you know, things like slope failure on sea ice to mm-hmm. be modeled in otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense right yeah. um, and um, uh, Putting sub models is possible to do this kind of distribution, but it makes more sense to have a transfer function that just estimates what that spreading out would be. Yeah. Um, but that's entirely, you know, that's, that's beyond the scope of, of your paper. So it's really it's cool though. To,
1: Definitely worth talking about.
0: It is cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like uh, the engineering of it is pretty interesting as well. You know, how yeah. fly missions and you know, what, what flight patterns and stuff. So it, circling back to this control variable, can you mm-hmm. speculate on how many knobs you would ultimately want to twiddle? Um, would you want to have, um, uh, you know do you think your four injection locations are probably going to be enough? Do you think you're ultimately going to need to have you know, six or eight in the real world and, and if you did, you know, would you want um, would you want temporal control as well? so you'd be varying month to month or even day to day or, or, or whatever you know, can, you, can you speculate on on what a fully implemented system would look like a kind of like deployment ready system how many how many knobs would it have?
1: Um, so, I can I can speculate, uh, but that's that's just the caveat that that's all it is, is pure speculation. I think that eventually maybe getting up to like seven or eight, because you'd probably want something at the equator, and then other than that, it would be symmetrical. Uh, or maybe it wouldn't be. Maybe we discover there's certain certain latitudes based on the. Because the, the two hemispheres of the Earth are not fundamentally symmetrical. So, so, you would only have seven
0: or eight. Are you talking about injection loci, or are you talking about variables overall? Because I'm also interested to understand whether the temporal pattern of injection is going to be significant. So would you expect that each of these locations would vary seasonally as well? So you kind of have two knobs per location.
1: It's very, very possible. Yeah, because right now we're looking at the the
0: parametric space starts to expand quite dramatically. Yeah, because if you have eight injection locations and you vary them monthly, then that's, you know, a, a, a you're, quickly, you're sort of squaring the number of possibilities. And that's yeah. lots, the math starts to get a bit bitchy when you do that.
1: Right? Yeah, I think season, I think monthly is a bit extreme. I think more realistic would be seasonally. Um, like in Because yeah. uh, right now we're looking at uh, injections at 60 North and the effects on the Arctic Circle. And uh, one of the conclusions that we got from Dan's paper and our own simulations that we've done since then is that injecting March, April, May, just in the, the spring so that the aerosols are up and ready to go by the summer is um, yeah. is more efficient than injecting year-round because the Arctic Circle only gets sunlight in the summer. So there's no sense you'd in injecting have potentially, in the fall.
0: So there potentially four seasons and eight locations. Um, so you'd look at – that would be essentially 32 knobs that you could twiddle, right?
1: Yeah, and close to the equator, the seasonal – uh, injection probably wouldn't matter that much i'm guessing that the okay. seasons would matter more so roughly your parameter the,
0: space is going to be in in the order of 30 or so right? 20, i think
1: 20 Before. to 30 degrees of freedom is pretty reasonable um okay. and because uh, but also the more degrees of control you have the more climate variables you can consider um, yeah i mean
0: so, I think this brings me on to that so, i mean i know this is kind of outside of your expertise or at least that's as i know it is but i mean you're, you're, you're Ethicists and other scholars of, of that ilk,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, uh, the chin waggers rather than the computer fiddlers, mm-hmm. um, have spent a long time discussing the implications of having just one thermostat. So if we've got 30 degrees of freedom to fight over, does that mean we have 30 times more fights? Or does that mean everyone just goes, "Ah, oh, stuff that's too hard, we'll leave that to the computer? Um, So, how do you see this playing out?
1: I think it would be a combination of both. Uh, Last summer, I attended a geo—we call it the geoengineering summer school. It was a a week-long conference at the Banff Center about governance and policy, and it was was a week of yeah. Um, I uh, and you—you probably remember all the different uh, case studies we did about different. Basically, all the case studies boiled down to some people want to do geoengineering and some people don't. And we had lecturers come in and talk about how geoengineering is being discussed at the United Nations, and some people don't even, some countries don't even want to bother researching it. And the the main conclusion that I drew from that week of policy and governance talks is that at the end of the day, the international community is never going to agree to this. If geoengineering is going to happen someday, I think it's much more likely that somebody just does it. Because the other conclusion that's that I drew, I yeah, that's
0: really interesting. I mean, one of the things that I'm working on, just to uh, use this um, interview as an opportunity to shamelessly plug my own work, yeah, um, is to um, look at the the ethics of um, uh, non-governmental actors. So basically, a kind of coalition of the willing. So you, you can imagine a situation where Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk go, you know, get together and just decide, well know, stuff you like. you've not done anything useful. We're going to just do it ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people, you know, when you've got those, I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos was confirmed yesterday as having $200 billion, which is the largest amount of wealth ever amassed by a single human being in the history of the world. Yeah. Which is, you know, an impressive achievement. You've <laughs> got to have your hats off to the guy for that, right? Can't all do that. Um, and um, he, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, Certainly feasible, although you know, others might dispute it. When you look at all the kind of control costs and monitoring costs mm-hmm. that, that these guys could just get together and just say, "Well, look, I'd rather live in a in a small house on a working planet than a you know have 200 billion dollars I can't spend and, and um, uh, on a planet that doesn't work." So I'm just going to do it and throw me in jail if you want. Um, you know, I don't think it's that unrealistic that someone might do that, and I also don't think it's that unrealistic that people might just think, "Well, you know, they've managed to run." SpaceX and Amazon and all of that pretty well. So we'll just let them get on with
1: it, right? Yeah, they're already launching rockets so, and like there's yeah, no exactly. reason I mean, they no, I think the, yeah, you know, they absolutely have the financial capabilities and eventually the technical capabilities. The um so my my advisor has talked. we've talked about the actual technical capabilities we need to start geoengineering. And it's my advisor's opinion that right now we don't have dark, aircraft. Right? Oh, yeah, Doug. Yeah. Right now we don't have aircraft capable of of deploying geoengineering aerosols in the stratosphere, but that's not the problem. We could easily have aircraft ready to go within five years. You know, yeah. people
0: haven't built, you know, aircraft that's designed to carry, you know, 2,000 people at one go. It's not that you couldn't physically build them, it's just that no one has wanted to buy one, so they exactly. in one night, right? Yeah.
1: And so it's uh, because the other interesting conclusion that I drew from last year's summer school is that once if you want to do geoengineering you can't really, nobody else can stop you unless they resort to direct military intervention. If Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk build well, it a could private be planes, engineering.
0: There's been quite a few people speaking about that, hasn't there? You know, that's deliberately true. releasing short-lived climate forces. but the kind I don't mean, think that's a bit speculative. I, yeah. I think the idea that it's, like, the fact that someone could do that means that no one will because if you can, you don't have to, right? It's a, yeah. it's a weird paradox. But just sort of circling back to your your comments Are you saying, therefore, that having this sort of multi parameter design space means that it's more like or less likely the governments will do it and more likely the private individuals will do it? Because that's a fascinating conclusion, and maybe it's wrong, or maybe it's right, I don't know. But I'd love you to unpack that.
1: You know, I hadn't really thought about it, but now that we've unpacked it like that, I I can't say that I disagree. I think as we uncover... We because we yeah, about
0: it, because that sounds like a pretty interesting paper to do.
1: Because <laughs> geoengineering is a design problem and not a yes or no problem. And the world would never agree already on whether it should be a yes or no problem. And so once you start introducing all the different variables and all the different control methods into it, it just becomes so complicated that... The world, the international community as a whole. I highly doubt that they'll ever agree on what to do unless it becomes, unless we get to some sort of catastrophe. If we are, if we are in so the you, same so sort just of just like repeat
0: that point yeah. back to you and, and paraphrase it. Is it you, you, your work shows that because you can now induce more fine control over the outcome of a, a geoengineering program as a whole, that there's therefore a greater complexity of trade-offs as to winners and losers. And and, and and that additional power and complexity, therefore, is potentially politically paralyzing and makes it harder to get agreement. So you, when you've got a simple sort of single knob and you say, well, okay, we can put this knob in and we can control it, then you're saying potentially that's easier to get agreement on because people know they've only got one knob, they've got to control it. Absolutely. But once you get this design space to 30... Odd parameters, and it can affect whether someone gets rain on Tuesday, and whether someone else has their picnic ruined, and all of this kind of stuff, right? That yeah. that becomes, you know, so politically paralysing that the, you have a paradoxical outcome where the better, more controllable, ostensibly, you know, technically superior system actually becomes impossible to deploy because it's inherently harder to um, get everyone to agree when there's so much control available, right?
1: I, I, I think so. I think the more complicated so it is, you, the harder an it's going to be. give an analogy, do then it's really. like
0: having, if you've got one restaurant in a town, and then the decision is just, are we all hungry? Shall we go to the restaurant? Yeah. Whereas if you have got 10 restaurants in a town, then everyone sits around arguing about whether they want burritos or Chinese or pizza. And it's, and
1: it's no more likely that nobody goes great. out to dinner at all. I think that's a fantastic okay. analogy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's kind of cool. I I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, yeah. I, and
1: then eventually I, somebody I no just gets fed up right and not, they call the I mean, Chinese restaurant, and then the Chinese everybody has Chinese whether they like it or not because yeah, nobody could I, I, agree. Yeah, I think
0: yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting analogy, and I, I definitely think that that's worth exploring. Are you minded to do any kind of um, you know social science and consequentialist work, or are you quite happy? Sitting in a uh, darkened basement, playing with computers and um, uh, equations.
1: So, uh, personally, I love my darkened basement and uh, and all my equations. I think that the social science is really cool, but I also think it would be better suited to people who have devoted their life to that kind of thing. Because um, I'm I'm absolutely I'd love to to be a part of it, but uh, I I would say given the choice, I just prefer the hard science and the applications through climate model simulations. In some ways, than-
0: it's a shame because I think you said some really interesting stuff about that. So, um, well, uh, hopefully others listening will, will look at taking this forward and, and see about the effects of your work. So um, I think we've covered your paper reasonably extensively. Um, one thing that does strike me, you've got some very pretty pictures in terms of um, it looks like a, a cake that's sliced with knives <laughs> in many different angles. Can you can you just talk me through that, that, that funny diagram you've got? Obviously, we can't describe it too uh, in too much detail uh, on uh, in a radio show. But uh, if uh, if you can give people an idea of, of how that, you know, what, is it is it like a Pareto front? You're looking to you know find the space that optimizes or just satisfies a number of conditions. What's the, that's not,
1: that? That's not that's not far off. We actually have a, the other PhD student in Doug's lab. Uh, her name is uh, Yan Zhang, uh, and she's actually working on Pareto optimal surfaces. Uh, my, the graphs that I put in this paper are slightly different, and it's the other primary, what I'd call the thesis of the paper. The first one is that we can use feedback control to govern precipitation-based metrics and sea ice alongside temperature ones as part of a, an inclusive, holistic geoengineering strategy. The second one is looking more closely at the different trade-offs between those different climate goals that we want to consider meeting. So what I've done is we've made a 3D graph, and the three axes represent the degrees of freedom. So you've got L0, the global mean AOD, on one axis. You've got L1, which is the hemispheric gradient or imbalance, on another axis. And then the third axis is L2, which is the equator-to-pole imbalance. And so those are the axes... And uh, it's, the amount, it's normalized by the degrees of warming in the background scenario. So we tried to make it agnostic to say whether you're looking at RCP 8.5 or RCP 4.5 or something like that. But it basically, the graph tells you what kind of combination of aerosol optical depth patterns, what combination of L0, L1, and L2 do you need in order to meet specific climate goals. So for example, on the graph, we have a surface, a dark gray surface, representing T-naught, or global mean temperature. And the orientation of the surface tells you how global mean temperature responds to changes in different degrees of freedom. Now, it turns out that global mean temperature, uh, this is something we've known for a while, it was one of the things in the Glenn study, global mean temperature responds primarily to changes in L0, and very little to changes in L1 and L2. Meaning that if you increase the global mean temperature... So it's kind
0: of flat on that plane, right?
1: Exactly. It's normal to the L... It's normal to the L... The surface, we've modeled it as normal to the L0 axis and parallel to the L1 axis and L2 axis. Because if you change the global mean AOD, you'll change global mean temperature. But if you change the... If you take those aerosols, if you have the same amount and you redistribute them across the hemispheres or towards the equator or towards the pole, you have less of an effect... On global mean temperature. I'm
0: glad you explained it to me because I looked at that graph before and I, I had only the merest inkling of what you were talking about. Yeah, that. but yeah, so, we um, uh,
1: we like to joke the, that there's probably like eight people in the world who could like look at this and understand it, and four of us wrote it, so it's a it's really <laughs> abstract and complex. Well, we've
0: ruined that effect now because you've explained it on the podcast. Yeah, like, more people will listen to it and understand it. Um, so the uh, in, in terms of you know, you've got these these planes that sort of show you. Are they all flat planes, or are they bendy? I couldn't quite tell.
1: Uh, so they're all flat. They're not necessarily normal to an axis. Uh, we have some but variables. But they're not
0: curved. Yeah, they're not a curved space, right? Correct.
1: We've uh, we've estimated okay. the the locations and orientations of the planes based on. We did a huge least squares fit to a bunch of different points of data from the Glen simulations, yeah. from the equatorial injection simulations, and from a bunch of. Uh, uh, shorter, we call them the matrix runs, just short simulations at single latitude injections, and we we by analyzing all those different points of so data these are approximations,
0: have, and then later you might find curves that fit better than the planes that you've yeah. got at the moment, right? Yeah. Okay, so and, and right now the, the intersection between these yep. different planes, like so if I'm trying to optimize um, uh, a, a set of parameters, then, then can I, well so like, you know, sea ice is really important to me, I don't mm-hmm. think temperature is as important And um, say, for example, soil moisture is really important. So I can potentially sort of point to where I want to be on this graph, and Mm -hmm. sort of create a blob on this graph, and say, well, I'm kind of happy there. As long as it comes in there, I'm okay. And then your thing will spit out a set of settings for the various climate engineering knobs that I can twiddle and kind of get me where I want to be. Is that? That's pretty. That's pretty
1: close. Uh, The individual planes on this model represent individual climate goals. So right now it's uh the, the big gray triangle representing global mean temperature means that's that's the amount of L zero that you'd need to restore T naught to its reference condition, which for this paper we defined as the 2010 to 2030 average yeah, under like that's
0: pre-industrial, but obviously yeah. we don't really well we perhaps actively don't want to be back at pre-industrial. Yeah. Because you know we might have got used to the new conditions. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively we might be in a position where um, you know, going back to temp like the classic example is if we return temperature to pre-industrial, we end up with over-drying, right? So yep. the blob of where you want to be might not include pre-industrial for some of these variables. Mm-hmm. But in in principle, by drawing a blob on your diagram, you could get to a space you're happy in, and then find a route to get to that by the twiddling the various knobs, right? Exactly. So you have your satisfactory CI, satisfactory rainfall. One thing I want to sort of throw in to spoil all of your fun, okay. um, is the, um, the apparent lack of consideration of any other geoengineering methodology. So, um, Barla, for example, a little mm-hmm. cocktail geoengineering, where they combine serious cloud thinning and marine cloud brightening, um, in theory, you could have a similar degree of variables to those with both spatial and temporal um, injection variability. Um, and they're more spatially sensitive than is um, stratospheric geoengineering. Mm-hmm. So in theory, you could have a parametric space that goes quite a lot more complicated than the one that you've drawn out here, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you uh, if you were to include more include more degrees of freedom, and that's something we talk about in the discussion section, where there are more geoengineering degrees of freedom than just L0, L1, and L2 that you get from aerosol injections yeah. at specific latitudes but it's very hard to visualize say a nine dimensional graph in your head whereas the 3D one is it's not perfect but it's it's nice and pretty and you can you can visualize it yeah. and so i absolutely agree that there's more you can do with this uh, uh, with this where, uh, whether it's more degrees of freedom through stratospheric aerosol geoengineering or adding another kind of geoengineering like marine cloud brightening or cloud thinning yeah. uh, there's absolutely more degrees of freedom that you could get and uh, it would be a little harder to visualize but you could do a similar kind of graph I That's have,
0: a, an elegant understatement the idea of being uh, it's a little harder to visualize in yeah. nine dimensional space Yeah I don't think I've any, ever met anybody who claims to be able to visualize a nine dimensional space I, I
1: think you would probably revolutionize modern physics if if you would be the next Stephen Hawking if you could somehow just blow
0: your brain Yeah <laughs> um, So so yeah, I mean, I, I think you've, you've given a, a pathway um, for this kind of research and also raised some really interesting sort of socio-political questions about the impact on agreement and how you know this might unfold. And I think once you get to a point where you're looking at potentially hundreds of dimensions, you have to be realistic and say, well, no human could ever realistically conduct a set of negotiations about that. You then move to outcome-based negotiations. You say, you know, we'll set, we'll set the design space that we want, we want... You know, this amount of sea ice on this amount of temperature and go away computer and formulate some way of getting there mm-hmm. you know no human i don't think could ever really unless they just sat down and did all the maths by hand which would be pretty insane they couldn't do it off the cuff um, to get you to where the climate wants to be but i, I think that that level of control is a really it's kind of revolutionary because i think that um uh people have been tackling a lot with the societal questions that arise from having a very limited control space and how, you know, the, we could have cooling, we could save the cities from potentially save the cities from uh, sea level encroachment, but that might be at the cost of droughts and some major agricultural reasons. And these trade-offs have been pretty much the bread and butter of ethicists in geoengineering for the last decade or so. And to say, you know, suddenly, oh no, 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 but our clever computer can change all of this and so you don't have to worry about any of that and you've got a whole different set of things to worry about. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a small deal, and that's why I wanted to get you on the show today. And talk to you about this because as soon as I saw this, it was like, wow, that's a really interesting paper. I could see this really driving things forward. So yeah, for a first paper, that's kind of impressive. Um, so it, in terms of your, you know, your personal journey, right? Mm-hmm. So you're um, you're doing your PhD at the moment, right? Yep. And then after that, you, I mean, one will assume you'll get it in in a reasonable period of time. Um, and, and what's the what's the plan after that? I mean, are you going to continue the same institution, do a postdoc, and how do you see your research over the next few years going, or are you going to, you know, just jack it in and say, well, actually, now it's fun get my PhD. I'm going to go and work for mega bank and leave this research to other people. What what's your what's your angle?
1: So uh, it's pretty early days yet. I've finished two years of my degree, and so I've probably got about three more left. Um, at uh, at Cornell, the uh, the type A dissertation, which is the type that I'm probably going to do, is basically just three papers on similar subjects stapled together. So I'm probably going to write two more papers, kind of like this, and then that'll be that'll be my dissertation. Uh, right now, we're working on examining effects of high latitude geoengineering on the Arctic and uh, at corresponding uh, cascading effects around the globe, um, and uh, it's. So once I finish my dissertation, it's not clear immediately where I'm going to go. Uh, I'm definitely interested in academia. Uh, I love teaching, and I'd love to I'd love to spend more time teaching in addition to doing research. Uh, I also I'm really happy with the kind of work that I'm doing because it's challenging, but it's also meaningful. Like if I if I were to walk out um, walk outside uh, tomorrow after my COVID test comes back negative, and I walk outside tomorrow and get hit by a bus. Uh, which I certainly hope that doesn't happen. But honestly, I could feel feel that by publishing this paper, I've already, like my life is meaningful. I've contributed something to science, contributed something to the world, and I'd love nothing more than to continue doing things like that. Um, But academia is not the only place I could do research. I could work for the public sector. Uh, I would, uh, before the whole pandemic kicked off, I was uh, talking to people at NCAR about visiting for a semester or a summer and uh, it's not clear right yeah. now if they're still taking applications You're
0: remarkably um, hopeful and positive for an academic normally they're supposed to be quite miserable um, that's
1: that's uh, another thing i've realized about being at cornell is when i came to cornell i was really scared because although the stereotype of the phd student is that oh everybody's miserable all the time and some of the schools i visited were like i just realized if i stay if i go to this school just the next five years of my life are going to suck but then i came to cornell uh, yeah, and it was I, like I felt
0: Looking around Imperial Colleges, and yeah, it was like I went to this fluorescent lit, windowless basement room in the engineering department. I was like, "Oh my god, I've got to get out of this place!" Yeah. and I never went back. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: uh, and it's I was I was worried things were going to be like that, but then I visited Cornell for a weekend, and it was the real difference for me was that the 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 visiting weekend for Cornell grad students in engineering it was put on mainly by the students and not by the faculty. It wasn't the administration and the professors saying please come to my school so we can have you do research and make us a ton of money it was the students saying this place is awesome you should come here and uh honestly i've never looked looked
0: back i mean i spoke to dan yesterday about cornell and um uh he said that some really surprising stuff because i would looked at it and it's got a good reputation and it's in a beautiful place oh yeah it's got the you know the highest suicide rate of any grad school or any university. And I was like, hang on, it doesn't really kind of square with what I've seen of the place. But, but you seem to have had a very positive experience of it. So Certainly that's,
1: with, with that's mechanical it. engineering, at least. Uh, the, the mechanical engineering program at Cornell is fantastic, at least the the grad school. Uh, it is true that Cornell has a, a, a notorious suicide rate. Um, at least I, I was under the impression that was among undergrads as much as grad students, but I, I don't actually know. I'm not very knowledgeable about things like that. Um, and it's I think you're quite
0: remarkable. I've never seen any, I've never, I've met, obviously, I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer myself, and I've met many other mechanical engineers from various different universities, and I've not heard anybody with a good word to say about mechanical engineering as a discipline. You know, um, I don't know whether you've ever seen the film Three Idiots, but it's fantastically funny, and it's mm-hmm. about a bunch of people who go to engineering college in India, and they don't get to do engineering, they just spend all the time doing, you know, abstract mathematical stuff and not yeah. actually. You know playing with machines, which is what they all like to do, and it's you know that joke's extended to a film, it's quite an entertaining film, yeah. You know, film making and breaking things, right? Um, funny if you're an engineer, um, but you know, my, my impression for, of, of the mechanical engineering um, courses is, is very much that they, they tend to be very abstract, very mathsy, not very you know, hands on, not very applied, um, and most people don't enjoy them. But I think maybe is it maybe because you've got that high degree of math skill? I mean, most of my most engineers are quite mathy, much more mathy than me, for example, right? Mm-hmm. But you seem to be even more mathy than most, most engineers. So do you just think you flourished in that kind of environment?
1: So I, I didn't actually do that much higher order math as an undergrad. I, I've only taken one proper grad level math class at Cornell, um, to get a better understanding of, uh, uh, computational analysis and, uh, and stuff like that. Um, but it's, a uh, I would I would say for me it's less about less about just like the pure mathematics and more about just the application and like physics class in high school was one of my favorite classes that I ever took and there was there was math involved but it wasn't my my high school didn't offer like AP calculus or a calculus or I mean AP physics or a calculus based physics course it was less about the hard math and more just about understanding the physical intuition of how different variables relate yeah, in the yeah. same equation.
0: Learned it, you know. I'm a very intuitive engineer. So one thing I want to go on to is, like, I I guess quite a lot of people listening to this be quite early in their career, and it's Mm -hmm. great to hear people from other disciplines because you know someone who's a philosopher or you know a social scientist doesn't necessarily know what somebody like you will do all day, and I think Mm -hmm. it's really great to get a deep dive. But what the other thing I'd like to understand is, you know, having gone through, you know, you're sort of the sort of early middle stage of your academic career. You know, you've gone through um, your undergrad and you've gone through your probably some kind of grad school and then you're quite late in your PhD now. So you're probably at a point where you, you start to sort of see the big picture, right? And, and how things have gone right and how things have gone wrong. It mm-hmm. seems like you're reasonably happy with what you've done, but but what do you think you, you know, are there missed opportunities? Do you wish you'd, you know, tried to take courses earlier when you were at high school, for example, and, you know, advance your career in that way or got more involved in research and undergrad or, or do you think you've basically done everything right?
1: Uh so it's um uh, I, I will preface this by saying I've been incredibly lucky and I also have a lot of opportunities that other people don't have. Uh I my uh my parents sent me to a good private high school, uh, and then I was able I learned how to write really well in high school, so I was able to get into a good college, and then my parents paid for me to go to a good college. So I have I've absolutely worked hard to get to where I am, but I'm not blind to the fact that i basically had all of the cards turn in my favor along the way. Um I would say that I, uh, I didn't figure out that I wanted to go to grad school and that I was interested in academia until quite late in my undergraduate career. And the fact that I, I consider the fact that I got into Cornell at all is kind of a miracle. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to get into places like MIT or Stanford because I only had one year of undergraduate research. I, um, my sophomore year, a- after my sophomore year, my Cornell second year of college.
0: It's school, is
1: it? It's, it's not. I would, well, I would say that um, – then that's why I think it's a miracle that I got in is because it was like there were schools that had uh, – uh, uh, I, knew, I knew that because I went to Brown and I had a good track record there and a good – I had uh, a year of research experience and uh, faculty who would write me letters of recommendation, um, uh, Ir- Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, it had about a 25% acceptance rate and I figured odds are pretty good that I would get in there. And then you've got places like MIT and Stanford that are like 5% acceptance rates. And I figured not a chance. And then you've got really top tier places. Like I think that Stanford and MIT are like a class of their own and probably Berkeley too. And then at the next tier, you've got like Princeton and Cornell. Interesting. You don't
0: include Harvard in that.
1: It's um, maybe for, maybe just for mechanical engineering, like Harvard, I think it was in the top, the top 10, but it's, I don't know. I just see MIT as being... So you're talking being, about mechanical like, one, engineering or yeah. geoengineering? Yeah, right, just okay. mechanical engineering. I, I didn't know that I was going to be in geoengineering until after I got to Cornell. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so As I an undergrad... you go and live in the yeah.
0: great Boston area. MIT is the obvious place to do your techie stuff rather yeah. than Harvard, right? Yeah, and
1: Harvard's not a bad school by any means, and certainly not for mechanical engineering. But it's um, I I figured my odds of getting into Cornell were probably like 50-50 at best or 1-3 in three because... I uh, I didn't know that I wanted to go into academia until I was very late in my high school in my college career because I had an yeah, in, I, mean, I, I had an, I yeah
0: I also found that you know it wasn't really despite being surrounded by academics all the time they then generally don't talk to you about the a, academia they just talk to you about whatever class they're teaching right and so yeah. often you know you, you don't really understand what they do and and everything like that yeah um, so that's um really interesting to hear from you and and, and get the um uh uh you get the lowdown on your career uh and and i think you've thrown up some really interesting um both technical and socio-political results so all the best with your um future research thank you um, obviously the the ability to add more and more dimensions and, and and get to grips with just how complex this design space could be is obviously the opportunity here and um you know we, we, we look forward to you revising and, your, and resubmitting your research with uh um, 600 dimensions in, and then we can uh, <laughs> reconsider it. So uh, unfortunately, got to reject your paper. Um, and, uh, But thanks very much for appearing on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.